We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to another Start Talk Radio. This is show number 28th, Sunday, August 11th, just in case you're wondering. Uh, I'm Joe Quinn. With me are Neil Bradley. Hello to all our listeners. And Pierre Lescoto. Hello. This week we're doing uh, another all and everything show, uh, which our listeners seem to enjoy. Um, even if they don't call in, which they should, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll find the <clears throat> find the courage. Please call. Please call. Well, no, it's, it's not that we we don't mind. I mean, we don't take offense. No, not at all. No, not at all. No, it's just that they want to. They shouldn't. Yeah. They shouldn't feel um, compelled. Well, they shouldn't feel compelled, but they also shouldn't feel um, shy, shy, or you know, inhibited in any way because um, we're very nice and yeah, we don't fight. <laughs> and um, we like to talk to people. So if anybody wants to just call in and talk to us, that's fine. Um, but as we say on these shows, uh, you can call in with anything yeah. that you are interested in or would like us to discuss or want to tell us about. So feel free. I think bottom line is it's all connected. So don't worry about jumping in with yeah. something that seems off topic. Because it all comes around to the same few topics in the end. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <clears throat> this week, as in past weeks, we're going to be discussing the various stories that have been in the news that have caught our attention that we think uh, need to be uh, front and center in everybody's attention. Yeah, and maybe truthified somewhat. And perhaps truthified a little bit. Um, only, you know, obviously this takes us into, you know, this involves you know, current affairs and stuff, but very often it relates back to, we have to delve into a bit of history to, to really give the proper context, which is very often the case, actually, that you really have to uh, to, to understand uh, the present and present events. You really need to look at them in a historical context um, because things do repeat over and over again. Um, and it's only when you see this repeating pattern that you understand that things are, generally speaking, aren't random um, when things happen in politics. Uh, generally speaking, they happen for a reason, uh, i.e. someone is planning it. Uh, it may not pan out how they planned it to pan out, but generally speaking, there are a bunch of conspirators uh, in the world today, the elite, if you want to call them that, who get together and have been for a long time planning various nefarious things uh, involving pretty much maintaining their positions <clears throat> as the elite and keeping we the people, uh, little people, in our positions, in our places. Yeah, and beyond uh, the status quo, when you look at the trends, there's an increasing chasm, increasing gap between the wealthiest and us, the people, 
which are becoming poorer and poorer. So obviously the elites never have enough wealth. No, and you see, it tends, that tends to suggest that it goes beyond um, just finances or wealth for these people because, you know... Well, yeah, if, you, if you've got everything and you want more... Well, you've got the, <laughs> at a certain point, it goes much far beyond uh, money, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. when you have more money than you could possibly spend in a lifetime, it becomes about control and power and the exertion of that power, just the feeling of the exertion of that power, supposedly. Um, by these people, so wealth isn't really uh, doesn't really describe it. It's more about, I suppose you could maybe call it resources, and that obviously involves ultimately human resources. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point, and uh, <clears throat> history shows that during the reign of Augustus, after Julius Caesar, Augustus became a, a real dictator, and he got all the power, all the control, and the Senate, the optimate got rid of all its power, it becomes nothing more than a consulting chamber. They were just here to sign and uh, give some suggestion. Augustus had all the power. However, interestingly, the optimates didn't rebel against this change because while removing their power, Augustus increased their wealth, which suggests that at least for some of the elites, what really matters is just uh, more and more material wealth. Mm. However, it might not be black and white, and power is certainly, in a, from what we learn in psychopathic literature, power is a, and dominance and suffering of others is also a main driver of the, uh, this uh, psychological profile. Mm-hmm. So it should not be, it's not mutually exclusive wealth and power. It goes hand in hand, actually. Yeah. I mean, when you consider you know, modern American empire or previous empires like the British Empire and stuff, the people who are working to expand that empire uh, or those empires that are working and that were working to expand those empires, um, <clears throat> they themselves weren't uh, enriching, becoming enriched or enriching themselves as a result of what they were doing. They were making the, you know, providing money and wealth uh, for the the state coffers essentially that were then used to further expand the empire and to oppress other peoples and to, you know, I mean, it's very hard to put your finger on what these people were actually after because they, you know, they could have easily got out of politics, for example, uh, and, and earned much more money, personal money that they could have put, put in their own personal bank accounts, uh, than if they stayed in politics, but they stayed in politics because it gave them access to making decisions that, that that directly influenced or very often directly uh, harmed or abused other people, you know. So I think for those people, it's more about the exertion of power than it is about. I mean, sure, they 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 want money for themselves, but once they reach a certain amount, like we said, it's very they very quickly reach a certain amount of money where you can't really once you've got a yacht, a private jet, several big houses. I mean, that's not a lot of money compared to the kind of money that, that that some people have, you know. I mean, you know, you look at people like Bill Gates, supposedly with $40 billion. He doesn't know what to do with it anymore. He has nothing to spend it on. He has everything he could possibly ever have purchased with that. So it's very, very quickly people, you know, it's very, very easy for people in, in politics, for example, politicians to have sidelines where they enrich themselves personally to a sufficient level. But 
they stay in politics because the real exertion of power isn't through personal wealth necessarily. It's to be found in the, uh, the power conferred on them by the people, supposedly, to act in the name of the people and to order armies around the world and to make decisions that influence millions of people at home and abroad and to see the effect of that, supposedly, you know. Maybe they want to be remembered as heroes. Yeah, it, it's got to be... They probably It's got to be some kind of narcissism or psychopathy or something like that that drives someone to to, to want to have that kind of a, an influence. I don't know if it's... Maybe maybe misguidedly they want to be, be remembered as, as heroes, but usually the way they do that is what they do to, would never... If, for example, look at Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill is known as a hero to most British people and probably to a lot of Americans or anybody else who knows him. But uh, the objective facts of Winston Churchill's life and what he did uh, make him a bloody murderer (laughs) and tyrant. Uh, So the only way that those people can actually set themselves up uh, as as a historical hero figure is to... Uh, distort history, and that's what they have done. Um, I mean, <laughs> the official story of Winston Churchill is all a lie, basically, what people believe about him. And the same is true for many other, most other historical figures, in fact. Um, the ones who actually did any good, which are very few, their their histories are also distorted, and they're downplayed, whereas the, the evildoers uh, they get their histories, their evil histories, whitewashed and presented as, you know, as real heroes. But so, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, about wealth, the, there is a study uh, reported by Daniel Kahneman, psycholo- psychologist, who said there's a strong positive correlation between wealth and happiness, from zero dollars income, monthly income, to three or four thousand. Within this range, the more you earn, the happier you are. But above 4,000, there's no more correlation. When making 5,000 or 20,000 doesn't change anything. Kind of plateaus? Yeah. At least for normal people, there is a notion of sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's enough money and more money doesn't change much to your life since you already have everything you want. However, amongst the elite, I was thinking about this, uh, this example of yachts. If you have a big yacht... Uh, you can only park it in a deep water seaport. If it's in the French Riviera, you will have to park your, your yacht in Monaco. It means that your very big yacht, like 100 feet, will be surrounded with very big yachts, 130, 150 feet. So, and here the, the psyche of the cities may be different in the sense that there's no sense of sufficiency of your own need. Maybe there's so much narcissism and comparison and status that they live through the comparison with others and just they're animated by this permanent illusory quest of being on top, having the biggest yacht and biggest jet, which is uh, unattainable. Um, maybe that's explained this, uh, this insanely rich elites that still want more and that still get more. Mm-hmm. And here we're not to- talking about the 1% of the population. It's uh, that's what it's called the ultra-rich category. It's uh, 0.01%. It's a very small, small minority driven by a very specific frame of mind. Yeah, well, um, they're a problem, but, you know, what are we going to do about them? Just a couple of big stories in terms of 
the disparity of wealth from this week. We've got an AP report. Reality check. Four out of five people in the U.S. are facing near poverty and no work. Four out of five. I mean, that's that's enormous. 80%. At the same time, in the U.K., something I'd never heard of until it came out, zero-hours zero contracts cover more than a million U.K. workers. I had to look it up. Zero contract basically means the work is not guaranteed. Neither is your pay. You may not be paid for the work you do. It's like flexi time and who's taken off- to a whole new level. Who's offering these jobs? Oh, it's your McDonald's, your big uh, merchandising sports stores and stuff. And this is a government? High, high Street. Is this government funded or government inspired scheme? No, or? it's very much a corporate. Yeah, corporate, just corporate a concept. bunch of different corporations latched onto it. Then. Yeah, yeah. And, and and they've got away with it because 20 plus years in Britain, UK, in the US, it, the neoliberal model of deregulating, there are basically no more workers' rights. Mm. And they can do this. They, they call it self-regulating. Corporations are free to just do as they please. Well, it's the logical, you know, ultimate uh, end result of, of, you know, letting corporations decide, ultimately decide what kind of... Uh, rules and regulations uh, they will impose on their workers. I mean, <laughs> if you don't have any oversight whatsoever, they will um, they'll basically serve their own interests, which is their own, you know, the, the, the corporation's bottom line and, and the, the managers or the, the board members' uh, salaries. So, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised, but it's a measure of social regression because uh, during the 20th century, unions, people, few politicians made a lot of efforts to establish some decent um, labor law and labor contract. But this zero-hour contract, it reminds me of 19th century, when you had poor workers queuing in front of the factories at 5 in the morning, and then the boss was saying, okay, you, you, and you, you come in and you work today in my factory for exactly. a miserable wage, and tomorrow I can drop you like a disposable uh, napkin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly it. You see, it, it's in the last 10 so years, there's been a regression back 100 years. Um, in terms of, you went back and you compared ancient Rome with today, with the extreme concentration of, of wealth. But actually, you can see this pattern on a smaller, more recent scale, um, where real wages go up and down for most people. And the concentration of wealth also goes up and down with it. And there's a great book by uh, an economic historian, I think Fisher's name is, called The Great Wave. And he's, he's charted this. He's shown that there have been four significant waves just in the last thousand years where wealth concentrates and then breaks up again, concentrates and breaks up again. And there are good times for most people where real wages, the actual amount of purchasing power the little man has, increases and then regresses again, with the fall of each price wave. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a bit complex. I won't go into it in too much detail, but it's um, this pattern. Well, it's just, we are currently, according to his, this pattern, we are currently on the crest of another wave. On the fall. Yeah. Where there's the extreme disparity. Mm-hmm. It happens over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, those waves of um, wealth, rising and falling of wealth, um, are correlated with social upheavals 
at the time of the of the falls. Exactly. So social upheavals uh, so and it's a build up. Change. Yeah, it's a, exactly, and it's a build up of corruption among the elite, mm-hmm. where they abuse their power, abuse their power. People get less and less and less and less and less. The whole system uh, kind of collapses, and there may be some kind of environmental effects as well, or cosmic cometary effects as well at that time. Not all, on all, not every time, but certainly sometimes. And it's just uh, it's a, it's a repeating cycle that goes uh, round and round and round. And it's like what we were saying, what we were saying at the beginning. You need to see these cycles to realize that you know there's nothing new under the sun, and we are, in a certain sense, stuck or trapped in this kind of these kind of loops or waves where things just cycle round and round, and nothing ever changes. And this has been going on for really most of uh, modern human human history. Yeah, it's not modern human history, but in the sense of the past. You know, known human history, 2,000 years plus. Yeah, uh, easily. It's uh, known in some circles as a dynastic circle. And basically, if you start from a, a collapse, after the collapse, you have pockets of survivors that take uh, decades or centuries to build a, a proto-civilization. Among the pockets of survivors, you have a few tribal leaders that get the leadership. Mm-hmm. When they reach a critical mass a sh- threshold, they start rewriting history, giving themselves a historical legitimacy and erasing traces of cataclysm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the linear, uniformitarian paradigm that we've been uh, emerging for, emerged in for two centuries now. And then uh, that's when you have a warm period, mm-hmm. weather-wise, less cometary activity, easier to rewrite history in a sense. And population grows, and we tend to neglect or Underevaluate the influence of climate, climate and weather on the development of uh, civilization, but that's by far the most important mm-hmm. factor. Specifically, for example, the availability of food. Uh, of course, I mean, yeah, the that's one that's thing simple. that would make people, you Deve- know, and population go crazy uh, or, or you know destroy the, their societies or social breakdown would be the, the, the unavailability of the basic staples of life. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the uh, historical records of temperature of, over the last uh, 5,000 years, you have a few crests. One period is an exception. It lasts one, two, three centuries maximum. You have the Minoan, Minoan crest. You have a uh, Akkadian crest. You have a early Roman Empire, late Roman Empire. You have a little crest in uh, 11th century AD. And you have a crest now, 20th century. That was exceptionally warm. But usually the default setting for our weather is uh, Ice Age. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go on with this dynastic cycle, during this one period, you have population that grows. Mm-hmm. You have oppression that grows as well. You have mm-hmm. this critical mass of lion suffering that grows because there are more people, so more people are oppressed, and you have those um, elites that always want more. That's what we were mentioning mm-hmm. before. So more oppression, more lies, and uh, it leads to, to this collapse with uh, on the human level, those civil wars, and on, uh, on social unrest, and on the cosmic level, those... Uh, with major uh, disruptions. Mm-hmm. And then the population is almost fully destroyed, of course, as a survival, and we start another cycle. We, yeah, we've got a, got a call, one of our first callers, I hope, here. So we're going to go ahead and take it. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello, you are live on Thought Talk Radio. Hello. Hi, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Oh, Chandra Dickinson, Mason, Tennessee. Hi, Chandra. Welcome. Hello, Chandra. Hi, I just wanted to 
I did. I just wanted to comment on uh, why some people stay in politics when they have more wealth than they can spend, and I, I think it has to do with fear. If they if they aren't in politics, if they aren't in control, their power may go away if they don't stay on top of everything. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. You mean... Um... I mean, they just kind of get addicted to the the power that they that they have, and they they don't want to lose it. Well, they may have more money than they can ever spend in a lifetime, but there's always that fear that they're going to lose it. And if they don't stay in politics and stay on top of everything and in control, they they aren't going to uh, have that assurance as far as they're concerned that, you know, that they're going to keep that. It could go away at any time. I think anybody who has a large amount of money or power has that fear. Mm. So in a way you're saying that that there's a a link between the kind of political power and their personal wealth, that it, it sustains their personal wealth or they have connections that allow them to increase their wealth while they're in political power. I, I do. I think that, yeah. and I think uh, I've often thought about winning the lottery and what would I do, and I, I think I would be scared I would lose it. Um, I almost don't care if I win the lottery ever again or ever at all. But, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, you know, yeah. I'm scared of what it would do to me. Yeah, I think I would spend it all straight away on something good. It's true that uh, well, if you I would hope that I would do that. If you hold a political position, you can have influence on laws. You can uh, prevent some uh, um, impeachment. So in this sense, you can protect yourself from uh, um, legal uh, actions against uh, illegal uh, wealth accumulation. So indeed, a political position can be a way to sustain your wealth position. Mm-hmm. Is it what uh, what you meant? Well, that also, and also, you know, to uh, put more more laws and more controls in place so that the chance that you would lose it is, is in their mind, lessened. Um, yeah. As you can see what's happening in the United States right now. I mean, there's yeah, things that are passed and people don't even realize it because they're distracted by this supposedly two-party, three-party system. Um I, I don't think that they, even though they have more than they could ever spend, they have mm. the fear. Fear is the main uh, motivator there, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fear of the masses and the rabble who would rise up and destroy, you know, uh, their their wonderful civilization and the class structure they've created. And they don't care if they destroy everything as long as they think that they are protecting themselves. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean... It's maybe the idea that these people who, generally speaking, people who are in these positions of, of, of political power and also have a lot of wealth, they see themselves as, uh, as essentially as an, an elite, as better than other people by, by the very fact that they're in these positions, they believe that that means they are better because if they weren't better, they wouldn't be in that position, right? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy or it's a it's kind of circular logic, essentially. And they probably have a an investment in... Um, in, in maintaining that kind of social structure where people like them remain at the top. Okay. It reminds I, me of... Yeah. <clears throat> Go on, Shandra. I was just going to say I agree, but I think the main motivator is that they are scared to lose it. Yeah. No matter how much you have, they're scared to lose it. Mm-hmm. 
It reminds me of a, a law that um, was operational during the Roman Empire. If a slave rebelled against his master or the family of his master and killed one individual from the family, the law stated that the master family kills all his slaves. Sometimes it was hundreds of slaves. And uh, during the Roman Empire, there was this fear among this elite of the, the, the slave rebellion, the slave looting us, the slave killing us in night. Uh, it's uh, quite similar to what we're describing now, this fear of the elites, the, the elites fearing the people. Well, there, you were, there, were, there were legitimate reasons for the elites to fear the people when you see the abuse that they commit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Sandra, thanks for your, for your call. Do you have anything else to to comment? Or? Oh, I have a ton of things, but I think that I'll let you get back to uh, what you're doing. I appreciate you letting me talk. No worries. Thanks for your call. Thanks for calling in. Thank Sandra. you very much. Thank you. Bye. I wonder, though, if, 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 as we think, a lot of them are psychopaths. Is it that they feel fear or they instinctively feel, feel hmm, the tricky one, they instinctively sense the pressure from below and, you know, sort of react to it, mm. that they're driven by. And it's not so much that they do things out of fear as it is a calculation of risk. Well, if we do this, what's the risk that this and this? And they think they got it all under control, and they do to a large extent. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know if it's psych- I mean, sure, sure there's psychopaths in, in positions of power, quite a lot of them, but I don't think they're all okay. psychopaths, for example, but all of them are certainly polarized and have all sorts of other, or yeah. in, in, in many other ways, character disordered. But um, I think people today, if they realize just, if they, if they were to get a look at what the their leaders, their so-called leaders actually think about them, mm. uh, I mean, it's only in the last 40 or 50 years or even less that probably less actually that there's been a kind of political correctness come in where um, people, political leaders essentially weren't uh, allowed or realized that they should not uh, express essentially elitist and very often racist uh, ideas in public. Uh, you know, because history, when you read the the words and the, the ideas expressed by various, you know, very well-known political leaders from, you know, 50, 60 plus years ago, I mean, it's shocking just how how racist and elitist they are, and how how happy they were, and, and how 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 um, how unconcerned they were about actually expressing those opinions, and leads you to believe that people accepted it as well. You know, the, a lot of ordinary people accepted this idea of they're better than us, and we're we're inferior essentially. You know, and it's only in the last. I think the invention of PR and mass media trained them a little, a yeah. little discipline. You yeah, know, just careful when and where you say this. Just don't say it anymore, basically. But they still believe it fervently. You know that um, that they are uh, uh, just uh, that they're they're fundamentally better than yeah. than, than a, superior to, a race apart, superior to to the rest of the population. And um, you yeah. know that may be true in terms of psychopathy, and it may also be. Generally true. It's a twisted version of a certain of a, of a truth that you know everybody isn't born equal. There are people who are, you know, more adept at, you know, different areas of uh, of intellectual pursuits, for example, or you know, uh, or 
uh, manual, you know, basically, um, you know, scientists or people who are more adept or more um, more inclined towards that. I don't know if we can get into that at a genetic level type thing or whether there's something fundamentally, uh, you know, true about that and the idea that there are some people who are actually that anybody couldn't be. It's a, it's a kind of thorny question that anybody couldn't be a scientist or a great philosopher or a great anything else, that anybody could be that, given the right opportunities in life. <clears throat> yes, you're, you're right. This being said, the duality between elites and masses, usually it's not based on merit. Those elites, those members of the elites, they're not uh, specifically more brilliant they have certainly more power, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure they got it because of their merit. And um, it, 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 what you say is interesting because it's uh, when you look at history, historiography, the way history has been written, there is a movement called gentleman historians. Mm-hmm. And when you dig a bit, you realize that most historians, so people who write history and that define our past, come from this uh, gentry, from the gentleman class, and one of the fundamental paradigms that were structuring their mind was this contempt for the masses. Mm-hmm. And so everything they interpreted, the whole history, the, the way they presented the whole history is done through this deforming lens where the elites, <clears throat> whatever they do, they're brilliant, they're, they have knowledge, they have nobility and uh, moral values and on this side, masses are rebels. They, are, they tend to rebel, they can be violent, they, they're little more than animals. Mm. How can you have an objective history? How can you have an objective connection to your past when it's interpreted through such a, a subjective lens? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, they've, they've, you know, like you said, that, that they have rewritten history uh, because all of the, the, the writers of history, you know, going back 2,000 years, but also in the last 50 or 60 years, all of them have been of a certain clique. Uh, who have all written it uh, to justify uh, the, the the social order, uh, you know, and even even um, science, you know, and uh, investigation of, of uh, you know, kind of genetics and all that kind of stuff was distorted and twisted to serve that end, you know. Um, I mean, we talked a few weeks ago with uh, um, Hank Alberelli about the kind of experiments that were done, the attitude that was taken towards. Blacks and other minorities in the U.S., you know, where it was, um, it was, it was, it was, you know, you had psychiatrists basically coming out and opining, giving these clinical definitions of of, um, of minorities in the U.S. as essentially being inferior, genetically inferior. Uh, now, I think I don't think that's true. I think uh, it may be true that certain people have certain, like I was saying, have certain proclivities, but uh, that's been twisted to make. Uh, in, an, in an inferior, superior kind of a paradigm, you know, where it's basically anybody who can, who has a proclivity to be to, to do great research in science or something like that, is better than the person who is, uh, you know, who, who works, uh, you know, building houses or something. You know, that's what the twist happens. To say one is superior, one is better than the other. You know, and um, there's nothing wrong with there being differences and people having different proclivities or different tendencies just innately. Um, but it's when it's uh, used uh, to create an elite uh, that abuses lower classes, as they're called. Uh, that's that's where the twist comes in. But just getting back to our our stories, you started off with one there about um, four out of five Americans are 
Uh, basically, at the poverty line. <clears throat> on the poverty line. Well, there's also, I mean, there's several stories. This is just, just from this week. Um, there's a story about called the Summer of Hunger, a huge rise in food bank use as demand linked to welfare reform. This is in the UK. Uh, there's a trust that runs the UK's largest network. Uh, it says that some branches have had to double the number of requests for emergency parcels since the start of the school holidays. Now, what this means basically is that there are a large number of families in the UK who are having to go and get, uh, essentially go to food banks. They used to be called soup kitchens uh, in the Great Depression in, in the 1930s. Um, during the summer holidays, because it, during the summer holidays when the kids are not at school, they're not getting free lunches uh, at school. So the parents are ha- so the very fact that uh, all these families are having to provide one extra meal for their children during the summer holidays means that they do not have they can't they can't do it. They don't don't have enough money to buy the food to do that. Now that's a very very precarious position to be in. That just uh, highlights uh, just how bad it's got. You know, it's not that. Um, uh, it's not that you know people are, you know people are have less you know less money or their purchasing power is down a bit or whatever you're talking here about, uh, you know a few extra meals per day for children, or beyond, the financial uh, abilities of um, of of many families in the UK. Um, so and then there's also uh, there's several stories about um, food price hikes uh, in the news. Canadian consumers cope with dramatic increase in food prices. From a few days ago, um, there's a story in the Irish Independent about the elderly facing a choice between food and fuel as a gas company seeks to uh, hike prices again. Uh, the national gas company in the, in, the, in Ireland is um, is increasing their prices again to you know another they want to increase it another seven percent. And there are all these various uh, kind of welfare groups that are saying that there's going to be large numbers of elderly, particularly, who um, will not be able to meet those costs and will have to choose between buying food for themselves or buying uh, gas to heat their And he- here you see the how wealth transfer can work. On one side, you have the, suppl- the, the goods that are getting more and more expensive. Goods are sold by corporations. It means corporations are making... Uh, bigger profit basically rich are making more profits uh, to simplify a bit and on the other side you read that people are more and more poor they have less and less income that means wage are plummeting so it means again the costs the wage costs that corporations face are dropping so on one side they increase the product price increase their profit and they decrease wages they increase their profit as well that's how you transfer wealth from the poor to the rich and uh, for years now, we've been hearing about the crisis, about deficit, all the debt and the bank and bankruptcy, etc., etc. We have to make efforts. All of us have to make efforts. That's uh, BS. Um, all the time, always the same, the measure, target, middle class and poor people. Reduce pension, increase VAT, reduce wages. It's always the same uh, line of thought. But at the same time, when we look at figures, 1% of the population owns 40% of the world's wealth, mm-hmm. while 40% of the poorest, the poor people, I mean, half the world population owns 1%. So it's uh, not rocket science. If To find money, it's easy. You have to 
get the money from this top 1%. And mm-hmm. there's a lot, a lot, a lot of money. At the same time, by bleeding the poor ones or the middle class more, you won't get much money. They own only 1% of the wealth. Mm-hmm. But they continue to do it. And it's insane because maybe they haven't read history, but uh, this has happened over and over again in a cycle. And uh, what happens is that there is usually some kind of a revolution and the established order, at least the overt established order, uh, falls. And depending on the times uh, that, that are in it, they may lose their may, they may lose more than uh, just their wealth. Uh, yet <clears throat> they don't seem to. No one seems able to take take note of that and uh, say, "Listen, even for our own self-preservation, maybe we should do something about this." They seem incapable of doing that. Which, you know, gets us into the idea of psychopathy and, you know, studies that have been done that psychopaths have a very poor ability to uh, imagine consequences of their actions. Uh, In that case, for a genetic reason, it seems. They're fundamentally unable to do that. Um, Yeah, I mean, you talked about wage declines. There's a story from the UK. Wage declines amongst the worst in Europe and the UK, uh, saying that... um, Seen, wages in the UK have seen one of the largest falls in the European Union during the economic downturn. That's over the past two or, one, two or three years. Um, and um, on the other side, UK companies have seen some of the highest profit margins. Here's here's a headline from someone who should know. Tesco is like the UK's Walmart. Tesco boss says era of cheap food is over. And he says that major food price rises are all but inevitable. Um, he's blaming a few contrived incidents like the horse meat scandal and rising global demand, i.e. too many mouths to feed. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Tesco's profits go through the roof. Yep. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, he's not too unhappy about saying that. He's saying that unless more food is produced, prices must go up, that it's a, it's a basic law of supply and demand. Uh, and he's saying, well, that's kind of cool for Tesco because, you know, prices have to go up. Uh, we don't really mind, for example, we say, for example, he thinks to himself, well, Tesco has, you know, 10 million customers. And they're all paying an average price for their for their goods of such and such an amount. Well, it doesn't really bother us if we have to charge twice as much for half of those people, five million people paying twice as much gets us the same massive profits every year. And the other five million who, well, you know, they just don't get any. But no skin of my nose, you know, it's all about the economics. And they're just taken out of the equation. Yeah, they, they're, they're yeah, talking about people. Talking about the equation, if we do some simple arithmetic, we go back to this previous example. One percent of the population owns 40 percent of the world's wealth. And 40% of the poorest owns only 1%. So, those 40% of the wealth owned by the 1% richest. You just take 1% from them of the world wealth, you know? So, they drop from 40% to 39%. It's nothing for them. You're still uh, super rich, okay? And this 1% of the world wealth, you give them to the 40% who are the poorest. So, they don't detain 1% of the world wealth. Now, they detain 2%. So by just removing 1% from the top, you double the wealth of the lowest. Exactly. This yeah. is this simple and it is this cynical well, what's you, going on now. It, it gives, gives you an idea. And it gives you an idea of, how, of just how much wealth 
is is contained within that one percent of the top one when one percent of what they own can double the wealth of the forty percent at the bottom, like everybody at the bottom of forty percent of the population could theoretically uh have twice as much but Pierre, Pierre, you're not allowed to point this out because then you're a communist traitor is isn't it yeah, really really sneaky and cunning how they they've wrapped any discussion yep. of some basics in terms of redistribution. Uh, it immediately lands you in the cookie. You're, you're no, no, no. That that's against the rules. You know? Well, I think it, at the very least it makes you un-American. But then that wouldn't matter to you since you're French. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, even, it should matter to you. Even here in Europe, um, talking about food price rises. I mean, I'm looking at the headlines coming from specific countries. Usually, price of vegetables in Middle East, up 17% just in the last month in the course of Ramadan. So I guess that's local suppliers taking advantage of the fact that it's Ramadan, so let's bump the prices up. Um, We've got other stories about food prices going up 10%, 15%, projected to go up 10% in the U.S. in in the fall next month. And then yesterday, the U.N. FAO as a headline that's been picked up by just about everyone, world food prices fall. <laughs> food prices have continued to decline in July, says the UN. Now, I don't know what, where they're getting the numbers from or which agency they're... They're, they know, don't seem to, they don't seem to check their own numbers because on the FAO website, you have a average price curve and uh, it displays a plus 120% increase over the 28-2012 period. Mm-hmm. So here there's not only speculation, there's probably some speculation, but there is a a fundamental systemic problem. That is that uh, crop yield is dropping since 2009. Crop yield for the four major crops has been dropping. It had never happened for decades. And uh, well... There are several factors to explain that, but one of the factors clearly is the weather changes. Uh, More heat, more sun, it's more chlorophyll, it's more more organic matter, more vegetal matter, it's more food, basically. It's uh, Mm -hmm. it's simple. Yeah, so things aren't looking good, and we just have to keep an eye on that, basically. But it seems to me, the impression I get is that it's going to reach a a critical kind of mass, a point at which it's Mm. no longer sustainable. Uh, They can't even cover it up anymore, or there'll be enough people, a critical mass of people who are going without uh, enough food. Um, Well, this year, two years ago, it was was a massive heat wave in Russia, Mm. and... Putin decided, stop, we're not exporting any more wheat because mm-hmm. we need them. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing reports at the time, Jesus, if there's any more, if there's another big systemic shock, you know, we're in serious trouble. Well, this year, China is set to become the top wheat importer mm-hmm. because of major crop failures. Mm-hmm. Now, because of a heat wave and previously because it was too cold mm-hmm. earlier this year, I mean, that's one over one billion miles right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it gets worse in the winter time. So there's a kind of a period where it's uh, not so noticeable. I mean, there's, there's a lag. There's, there's a lag essentially because you know they're still for this year anyway. They're still uh, 
they're still to finish harvesting, for example, and to take stock of what they actually have. Um, but in winter time, the consumption of food generally goes up because uh, there's a lot of uh, animals that actually need feed yeah. in the, over the winter time when they're housed inside. And um, I wouldn't put it past certain big uh, agricultural companies that uh, have large numbers of of animals for the for the meat industry to uh, well to give to give the food to the animals rather than the humans. You yeah, know? I was reading somewhere apparently meat prices are not skyrocketing like grains and vegetables yet because they slaughtered an awful lot of animals because they can't afford to feed them. Mm-hmm. So for the moment there's a, a reservoir in the system, but that's only a temporary measure, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. Um, optimal growth of vegetals uh, occurs within a very narrow range of environmental parameters, humidity, uh, temperature, etc. And um, what we have noticed over the last um, 10 years, roughly, is that uh, weather is much more chaotic. Uh, there's the beginning of a global cooling, but worse than that, um, there's a lot of variability. And that's what we've been talking about. It's heat waves. It's a cold spell, it's a hail, a massive rainfall, mm-hmm. drought, and all those events are without uh, are outside the optimal range for vegetals growth. That's why crop yield is uh, is dropping because the weather is too chaotic. It's mm-hmm. not stable. It's not optimal enough. Well, yeah, and this is from this week. Freak hail the size of eggs destroys 90% of Bordeaux's vineyards. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, why that? Zoya has just, has just asked that we kind of talk about that, about the um, about the floods. I mean, they've been going on for, for quite a while, several months at this stage, but they're continuing, you know. I mean, there's uh, we've noticed that there's uh, flash floods um, in Colorado Springs, um, just a few days ago, uh, there were Russia in Russia. There's a lot of uh, serious damage to um, fl- floods in the Russia's east coast, caused 30 million in damages as a result of heavy rains. Yeah, and also in southern Siberia, mm-hmm. while northern Siberia is having record wildfires and a heat wave, and there's been wildfires wildfires in California. Um, I mean, this is a really bad combination, you know. In certain areas, you have massive rainfall and flooding, yeah. washing things away, uh, flooding fields, destroying crops. You have major hailstorms destroying crops, and then you have um, okay wildfires. Maybe aren't haven't reached major kind of agricultural areas. Mostly they're in um, they tend to be in the mountainous uh, kind of hilly regions and stuff. But uh, it's an example of the of the chaotic weather patterns. That are that are leading to, I suppose, floods really are the worst. I mean, drought is an issue as well, but when you get both of them together, it's, it's terrible from one year to the next. Or in the very same year, you can have first half of the summer a drought, and then you know you have to, you know, um, water the plants. Yeah. Uh, the, the theme seems to be then you get floods that come and just as the plants t- kind of t- are able to take root and uh, start to grow, then you get mm. floods and they're all washed away basically. So. 
there's a lot of it's a lot of stress on plants and there are several factors to explain this uh, this change towards a more chaotic weather. We mentioned already the meandering jet stream, what defines uh, what separates cold uh, air pockets from warm air pockets. Meandering jet stream it means in the same location you get a, a sequence an alternance of warm air and cold air. It means uh, much more precipitation overall. Um, and there's another factor that explains the increase in, in floods. In rainfall is basically rainfalls comes from uh, clouds. And the two major factors to create clouds is the uh, presence of dust, which are the nucleation agents around which droplets form, and, uh, and cooling down air. If you have air that cools down and you have a lot of dust in the atmosphere, let's say dust having a cometary origin, you will increase your cloud coverage. Mm -hmm. And it's even worse if after, say, 10 years of global warming during the 90s or one century of global warming during the 20s, you've had a lot of evaporation from the oceans. So you have a lot of steam of water vapor in the atmosphere. And then you start to have a global cooling. So you have major condensation processes, a lot of cloud formation, a lot of rainfalls. The thing yeah. that strikes me is, is that you've got these extremes side by side geographically and in time. So you can have a major wildfire in Colorado and the next week there's a flash flood. And one doesn't cancel out the other. They both heap more misery on the land, the environment, the people. Um, how does that fit into I mean, we can talk about general trends of warming, general trends of cooling. But clearly, if northern Siberia is experiencing 35 degrees mm. centigrade... Before you had a... When you have a, a strong solar activity, you have jet streams that go fast and in a narrow way. Narrow way means uh, at the same latitude, they will separate neatly in a linear way what is south, warm, what is north, cold. When solar activity drops, the jet streams start to be weaker and to meander. More. More. It means that in uh, one location, say uh, Colorado, you can have, a, you can stay, you can be a south of the jet stream for a long time, have a draft, basically, uh, and one day it can change. You can have a meander, and you're on the wrong side of the, I mean, you're on the cold side mm -hmm. of the jet stream all of a sudden, and you have a very cold weather. So it accounts for the temperature change. For the, you can have a long warm period and a long cold period. But when we change from a from a warm period to cold period, you have a lot of condensation. You have a lot of flood as well. So that explains as well the the, the precipitation. And if you're in a location where you have this alternance, frequent alternance of warm and cold and warm and cold, but each time you switch from warm to cold, you have condensation, mm -hmm. you have rainfall. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you are in a far less stable and predictable weather pattern with this meandering jet stream. Mm -hmm. You can have uh, anything, that, and that's what we see in Europe. Sometimes you have a jet stream that is really high up, like recently in July, and uh, you have uh, basically weather from North Africa here because you're south of the jet stream, and sometimes it meanders and the jet stream is very low, and you have directly Arctic air coming down to Siberia 
to Europe and you experience minus 15 uh, degrees Celsius temperature. In, in wintertime, winter. but the problem is that when that happens in summertime, when you have this change in the jet stream, as, as happened just recently, um, particularly for the UK and for, for France and various parts of Europe where you've had a spell of uh, warm weather uh, or very hot weather, um, and then the jet stream loops down and brings down kind of cold uh, polar air, and that meets the the warm air that has been predominating up to that. You have serious um, uh, rainstorms and massive pre- yeah. precipitation, like really like floods. That's what we're seeing floods and also m- major hail, and that, that's the that's the kind of pattern that we're in right now, and it's it's yeah. not good, you know, and people. Uh, people need to kind of take stock of just the, of the implications that it has for for the the food on your the food in your food fridge, on, food on your family, the food in your family. As Bush would say, uh, it's going to be hard to put food in your family, and we need to <clears throat> well need to plan for it basically. But I mean, just there's a little story here I was going to go for it. Mention about um, there's a a group called it's an independent uh, scientific research organization in Orlando, Florida, called the Space and Science Research Corporation, and it has become the leading research organization in the United States on the subject of the science and planning for the next climate change. And they have recently issued a report saying that they, well, it was basically a campaign that they launched a nationwide campaign in the U.S. to encourage the largest U.S. academic institutions to become active participants in getting the U.S. prepared for the next climate change, which they say is to be one of decades of extreme cold. Hmm. So, global warming, my derriere. So you had uh, Bilderberg in 2004 announcing global cooling. No, you had Pentagon Papers in 2010. No, no. The opposite. <clears throat> okay. So in 20, uh, 24 and 2010, you had the uh, Pentagon Papers and Bilderberg announcing global cooling, and now it's uh, this new uh, research institute. Just one point about hail. One factor that may explain the, um, the higher frequency in hail is that um, first is the temperature difference between the fronts because of this uh, chaotic uh, mainstream uh, jet stream. Another factor might be the high concentration in cometary dust in the atmosphere because uh, dust has been an electric field. Dust can increase the electric field. An electric field tends to uh, stimulate the accretion of uh, ice crystals and uh, of droplets as well. So that might be another reason why... uh, we are witnessing such uh, serious or severe hail episodes. Yeah, there was one recently in, I think it was southern Germany. I think there were many episodes, but this one stood out. Somebody posted images and video footage. And this, this town was destroyed. I mean, roofs were smashed in. Cars were shattered um, by hail the size of baseballs and bigger. I've seen it. I've seen. I've seen it in the U.S. I've seen you know reports of it, but um, yeah, never. I've never heard of it in Europe before. Uh, Enormous hailstones. And they what, kill. They kill you if they hit you. When we think about temperature gradient, so temperature difference, we usually visualize a horizontal gradient. You know, up north it's uh, colder, warmer than here, etc. But there's also a strong vertical gradient right now. Some uh, NASA source. Um, 
announced two or three years ago a massive cooling down of the upper atmosphere, mm-hmm. uh, magnitude 10. So it's a very important cool down. So sometimes you can have a coexistence of a very, very cool higher atmosphere, upper atmosphere, and you can have a very heated up lower atmosphere. And that can be the source also of uh, such dramatic events, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this, last week we were discussing this uh, solar, flare, uh, solar flare, alleged solar flare that we just missed, that we just missed a solar, solar flare kill shot a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And that it was, um, it was a group of fairly high-level Washington-type outsiders, including lobbyists. Uh, Including William uh, Colby, I think, former CIA director. Uh, I think he's long gone. I think it was James Woolsey. No, sorry, James Woolsey. Woolsey. Yeah. Yes, got the wrong one. Uh, that he, so, so this was the idea that two weeks ago we missed uh, a major solar flare. And this is a group that um, they kind of call themselves EMP experts. And they've been trying to lobby, supposedly lobby the government to try and take, take uh, note of, um, of the threat. From the sun. Yes, E-M-Pact. They call themselves E-M-Pact. E-M-P-A-C-T. Um, to take note of the threat, the dire threat to humanity from a major solar flare. And they claimed that two weeks ago, we just missed one, except that you know the sun wasn't just, it wasn't square on Earth, but we missed it. And if it had hit, we would have been, it would have knocked out all of our electronics. And they've been trying to lobby. And these aren't just anybody. These are like, you know, the former CIA director and... Um, uh, another guy, Henry Cooper, who led strategic arms negotiations with the Soviet Union under President Reagan, um, or President Bush, I think. Um, and he now heads a, high, a group called High Frontier, which is pushing for missile defense. Anyway, these are the kind of people we're talking about. They're not, you know, they're not just nobodies. And they claimed that two weeks ago we missed this kill shot, solar flare. Uh, EMP would have knocked out everything on the planet probably, and all the electrical grid. Uh, iPhones would have been the least of people's worries, not having access to their iPhones. It was the main problem is the electrical grid would be, go- would be gone and would take a long time to get it back up and running, i.e., therefore, you know, no refrigeration and factories, a lot of factories not working. Just no electricity means pretty much everything. So, But then, Neil, the story was that this was Exposed as uh, not, not exposed, not, not, but not exposed, NASA but NASA said nonsense. Well, one of NASA's outlets is the guy called Dr. Tony Phillips, who runs SpaceWeather.com. He made a statement the next day and said, "No, no such thing happened," mm. and that was it. It was just dropped. But the point they wanted to make was, "There's a threat. There's a threat. Mm-hmm. It's like Al Qaeda, you know." So we've been seeing this, and we've also been seeing this interestingly converging with. Uh, this group, it's, uh, it's uh, this website that has been publishing bogus stories about Snowden, yeah, and supposedly the documents that Snowden still has in his possession and still available, still to be released, and that they talk about just such a an event, a threat that this is taken seriously in the in, in the internal uh, and deep in the bowels of you know. The elite, the beast. That's a terrible image, but anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> don't want to go there. But basically, the deep in the realms of the beast, that they that they take this seriously. But they, this website has been producing spurious, bogus yeah. information. But it's interesting that it's coming out at the same time that the a former director of the CIA is claiming that it actually happened. 
and we correlate it with what we understand to be the real threat, which is comets and their effects, which can, in fact, be something along the lines of an EM pulse yeah. that would take out electrical grids, etc. If it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about it more extensively uh, soon, I suppose, about the EMP effects and electric effects of some uh, cometary bodies. This being said, yeah, as we said last week, it's a double lie. Because first, it suggests that the sun is having a strong activity. It is flaring. The sun is not flaring. And that's quite, quite the opposite. So do say that we probably are in the known, are perfectly aware that the sun is unusually inactive. And that's a major worry. Hence, those reports announcing a global cooling, Ice Age. And uh, why they're aware that the global cooling is coming, they make applies pointing to the opposite flaring, i.e. high solar activity, i.e. warming. And at the same time, it's a distraction from a real source of EMP, i.e. comets, that indeed are on the rise, unlike the amazingly quiet, non-flaring sun. So we have another call here, so I'm going to go to this. <clears throat> Carl, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Well, if this is me, this is Nathan Carney. I'm calling hey, from Elk, Washington. Hi, Hello? welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi, Hi, how are you? Pretty good, how are you? Yeah, good. Um, that guy who you were talking about got a lot of airplay on AM radio out here. Who? I just came across him the other day talking about the fun things. Who? It was... Um, about, the, about Snowden, you mean, or the, uh, or the, uh, the, the think tank uh, organization? Yeah, yeah, it was really strange. It had... Very religious overtones. Who, who, are you of, talking um, about, who are you talking about specifically? I can't remember his name. He was on the um, he was on the EM radio. He's on all the time, and he always pushes that whole sun EM EM effect from the sun all the time. It's so the uh, fact that oh, he yeah? just made your play made me pretty skeptical of him. But and who is he, he speaking for? Like some kind of religious organization. I can find oh, yeah? out more if you want. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That might be that might be United West. Uh huh. They're 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 another high level lobby group coming out of this from another angle. They're saying that the uh-huh. U.S. needs to bolster its defense against the threat of EMP caused by Iranian right. and North Korean. Oh nukes. yes, that's it. And he plays himself as kind of a local folksy kind of church guy, yeah. rallying independent Americans, <laughs> kind of. Counter-probe, yeah. I suppose. So it's on a very, so mo- a very, yeah. The whole AM radio is full of that kind of thing. It's the um, it's the oh, Iranian, yeah. the Muslim slash Iranian oh, threat to America yeah. from from Iranian EMP from a, an Iranian nuke that would cause an EMP. Uh, yeah. That's just so irresponsible for him to push that. Yeah. And for people well, to buy into it is just sick. But they do it. They do it extensively yeah. in America, to the point where. When I bring up issues of global warming, people suddenly, they don't know what, what my position is, so they'll say things like, you got to really wonder about people who who don't believe in global warming. And, <laughs> yeah. and I the always al- just say, uh, better not speak, you know? Yeah, the opposite is true. you got to wonder about people who believe in it. Yes, exactly, but they've done such a snow job on, yeah. on, on the public. It's just outrageous. Uh, I was wondering about the... 
the melting of the Arctic ice, and I can do the research myself and find out things. Um, I just am sometimes a little lazy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was wondering if you could talk about about the melting of the Arctic ice and the science, because I know when I brought up the whole uh, thing about there was a protest a couple years back in Amsterdam or about the climate gate. Uh-huh. And I brought it up to my brother, and I said, all these people are um, protesting about this. And he's like, and I said, well, what do you think they were protesting about? And he said, because they're not listening about global warming. I was, it was actually the opposite, and he, and he didn't even know that. And <laughs> it's just, um, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the some of that. Well, you already were, really. Yeah, in a certain sense. I think the the general idea about arctic ice melt is that you have this very chaotic we- these very chaotic weather patterns where you have mm-hmm. extreme heat for a certain period uh of time and even you know it's even in the winter time you can have warm warm winters and stuff but in the summertime you can have like this summer we've had extreme heat up oh it's at very high, very high la- very high latitudes though as well in Siberia you know there was a, a town in Siberia that was at 32 32 degrees Celsius you know it was like ni- in the 90s and, almost and the thing about strange, it, so you ha- mm-hmm. the strange you, weather you have, patterns in Alaska yeah exactly so you have this kind of chaos chaotic weather weather patterns with with, with heat you know it, it's not it doesn't mean that, that the earth is overall warming in fact, global warming stopped. It's pretty much officially recognized that global warming stopped in 1998, and it's been cooling overall right. on average right. since then. But when you have these summers where you have a lot of a lot of uh, very high temperatures in the wind in the summertime, and you have a lot of mm-hmm. Arctic Arctic ice sheet melt, all of that's fresh water coming into coming mm-hmm. into the the, the mm-hmm. North Atlantic and the North Atlantic Drift, and that has uh, that plays a very significant part in in creating or pushing the planet into, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, obviously, into right. an ice age because that disrupts the kind of the Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Drift that brings, that keeps the nor- a large part of the Northern Hemisphere kind of fairly temperate. So right. it's an example of where, of where warming for a small period of time in northern latitudes can cause a, a kind of rebound into, into extreme cooling. And I mean, mm-hmm. the the Arctic ice, the Arctic ice melt might be might might be uh, quite high. For example, this summer, sure. And a few a few summers ago, it lost the the, the initial cover sheet lost like ninety percent right. of of the initial cover in, in well, a couple of days. They but, claim that. Well, they claim that. But the thing about they it is, they claim it. The next the, the win the following winter, it built back up to more than it was beforehand. Wow. It, they had they couldn't even get into that gnome. Uh, exactly. Had the ice so just so completely so starving them. Yeah, so that's, you know? that's the thing. People think they oh look in the summer they go oh look the Arctic ice sheet is melting uh, right. more than it has right. ever done, and then they don't think that okay just wait six months and wait and see what it's like then, and wait and see what northern latitudes in Europe and in North right. America are like then as well. They'll be like under ice as well. And, and, I see. Um, yeah, there are I hope I local. Don't see it, but... Yeah, there are local yeah. observations. All right, well thank look... you. Yeah, I'm sorry. Cool. Do you need to go? Nathan? I don't. I can stay on if you want. Okay. Pierre's going to say something. Yeah, there are local observations and there are global trends. Local observations are more chaotic now because of uh, factors we have mentioned, like the jet stream disruptions. Global trends, they show quite clearly since uh, 2003, by using the same probes as the one used by uh, uh, official uh, 
global warming mm -hmm. organization. The suspect temperature readings. Yes. You know. Those temperatures, on average, have been dropping since uh, 2004, roughly. So there is there are two trends going on: a a more chaotic weather, and b a cooler weather. And this being mm -hmm. said, as Joe mentioned, there are some rebound effects and there are some feedback loops. And mm -hmm. if you have a cooling after warming, which was the case during most of the 20th century, you have a cooling that occurs with an atmosphere that is saturated with water vapor. And when it cools down, it's major rainfall, major wow. snowfalls, and then you trigger what is called an albedo effect. All this okay. snow that falls will reflect most of the radiation from the sun, which will trigger even more cooling, mm -hmm. even more condensation, even more snowfall, even more snow cover, even more reflection, even more cooling. So you have mm -hmm. a, a feedback mechanism, and that's why, that's one of the reasons why Ice age don't set within uh, decades, as it was previously known, but they might set so as the, quickly as within three months. So the mechanism is cometary dust in increasing the water vapor? Ah, uh, yeah, that's, an, uh, that's mm -hmm. another factor that can trigger a feedback mechanism. Yeah, but you, you got it exactly. You have two factors that are synergetic. A, cometary atmospheric dust that increase cloud nucleation, hence rainfall. And you have a reduced solar activity that, uh, that triggers cooling, and therefore more condensation, more cloud, more rainfall. So actually, you have okay. two feedback mechanisms feeding each other and going together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's been so quite good. extreme here out in Spokane. It rained for almost a month straight. It sounds and like And then it. it just baked, just baked. No rain for a month. Last year was the same, real hot mm -hmm. and dry. Um, mm -hmm. To the point where I can't even get the garden completely <laughs> watered. Yeah, under control. Is it raining right. heavily there now? It isn't, but we're getting some thunderstorms, which is pretty common in this area. There was uh, the jet stream seems to be coming down from Canada into the Midwest, as you're probably aware of. Mm -hmm. And but it's sort of missing this area right in the corner of Idaho, um, eastern Washington. It's um. Yeah, the it promises to have quite a bit of snow, probably. Yeah. Uh, if I were like you, I would be... Uh, yeah, and I, if I were you, I would be uh, thinking seriously about what you would do and if you were seriously snowed in, you know, uh, this winter. <laughs> I've been there. I can handle the snow, kind of. It's the heat that I, I worry about because the, the chances of wildfires, which are pretty... There's a lot of it mm -hmm. in this area. And, uh, yeah, so, um, but as far as the snow goes, I grew up in Alaska, so, I mean, I, mm. I remember my mother shoveling snow every single day, you know, and my father, too, and everybody. We we had to tunnel into our house. I mean, so. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, think, yeah. I'm, thinking, more, I'm thinking more about, um, it's one thing to be able to tunnel out of your house and. <laughs> But what, what 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 if you can what if when you tunnel out of your house there's no real point because the supermarkets are closed because no deliveries are coming through so you, you can't get any food you can't get any food you know that's right yeah well so that kind of thing I'm trying to, to store some well. food yeah okay well, that's a good you idea you know um be, um broth pigs pig broth and chicken broth trying to store it up um. Just because, you know, I, I don't want to focus on survival things. I want to focus on what I feel like I need to do, which is communicate with people, somehow help yeah. people. 
get information out there from people. If you want to continue to be able to take care of yeah, if you want to continue to be able to do that, to communicate with people and get the information out there, you need to be able to, you know, have the energy to do that. You need to... You need to be alive. Yeah. You need to have your chicken <laughs> Exactly. Back. So right. it's a good idea, and it's not, it's not about survivalism. It's simply, like you said, it's about you're not surviving, you just survive. You're surviving for a specific purpose. Uh, to yeah. continue to be able to kind of communicate with people and, and get the message out. So, I mean, that's the attitude to take. It's not about, uh, it's not a fear-based thing. It's simply being prudent. I'm yeah, you, it's just the like the same reason I go to work every day. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, being prudent, needing and to be prudent. The, I don't know, Nathan, mm-hmm. if you listened to the previous show, but if this uh, human cosmic connection exists, and that's only an hypothesis, the more people who see reality objectively, the more truth signal and uh, maybe the less, uh, the less uh, cosmic right. rock. Right. So because, we might have an influence more than we think. Maybe. Would it be safe to say, Pierre, that we attract these commentary disasters by not being uh, more of a civil, a good society of people, a community of people reaching out, helping each other? Well, when it's a, when it's we're good. believing lies, we attract yeah, the it, destruction. That's the theory. In, in a nutshell, yeah, it's probably. Uh, it can't be any other way. Maybe it's probably on the quantum level the we might influence the probabilities of the collapse of this probabilistic wave okay. and increase the probabilities of those uh, cosmic uh, issues. But, uh, okay. yeah, the, the, there is, historically, there is a correlation between periods of uh, oppression, lies, and uh, cosmic uh, um, disruptions. There is a, a very clear connection. You it's would think that the elites, do, it, with the Roman Empire, would at least... Um, have figured out that equation to some degree because they have a well, perfect example of what happened to us you know maybe um, some maybe the, some did but uh what they maybe maybe they figured it out but what they did when they started to rebuild civilization is they rewrote story and they erased records of this uh, of this connection they created a paradigm, a scientist paradigm, where man activities and cosmic activities were totally uncorrelated, and they erased the records of any major cataclysm. So we are all fans of our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so huh. I mean, there's this idea, uh-huh. idea that at some level the elites maybe do know that, but they're keeping quiet about it because they also figure that, you know, they don't have much concern for the human race, and also they're, they think they. Uh, their super spirit bunkers, uh, you know, two right. miles under mountains and stuff are, are going to protect them against it. They, maybe they, you know, they figure, okay, maybe they, I'm sure those kind of people don't blame themselves for it. don't say, listen, we're doing this. We're causing, we're bringing on cosmic catastrophe. They they don't think that far in advance. They're not, they think about themselves think far either. too much. They think far too much about themselves and what they, they, they need to control and dominate. But there may be a few who realize, you know, as it, as it starts to happen, realize that there is a threat from cosmic catastrophe and they don't join the dots but they just see it as a, as a threat and they've known about it for maybe X number of years and they've decided right. okay let's just it's kind of like they just react in the moment to, to threats like that you know so they build themselves some bunkers and think they're going to survive it but they don't uh, take into consideration earthquakes and the opening up of the earth and that you know no matter how far you go you can build your tunnel under Mount Weather or something like that big packs can open up down there and you know, your your lovely new uh, underground base can get uh, all messed up with lots of lava, you know? That would be terrible. I think so. 
I think so, and then they can emerge afterwards and cause all sorts of problems for people who are trying to just... Yeah. I think yeah. the the answer to your question, does it depend yeah. to, to to some extent on how well we live as a society, is yes, but. The but is that it's not in the same way that they're, the powers that be are blaming the masses below them for global warming, bringing all right. the harm. It's that the, the, the most of the responsibility in this scenario shifts to the fact that we've got a pathological elite bearing yeah. down on the map below them. So, yes, people living well and a virtuous life is a major uh-huh. factor, but it's it's more importantly, it's it's the uh, oppressive elite on top of that that's bringing this on, that is attracting this. It's not so much the people attracting it. Yeah. You don't no, think I mean, that the biggest it, factor of the largest population of people buying into their their lives, though, is is well, the crux? Yes. It's yeah, not great in number. Yes, mm-hmm. but maybe they only have part of the equation, and they keep on blaming the people, and for right. them the reasoning is as follows. Okay, there is a positive correlation between social unrest and cosmic disruption. Therefore, social unrest, because of the masses uneducated masses that tend to rebel because their their inherent violence trigger cosmic reaction. Mm-hmm. But they miss mm-hmm. out one main factor in this equation, i.e. the social unrest is simply a reaction to the oppression Corruption. exerted by That's the elites. Right. Yeah. So they wash okay. their hands from this uh, major phenomenon. Yes. What? So they don't actually acknowledge the, their responsibility to all the suffering of, of, of a, a great many people. No. It, yeah. They think too well of themselves. To think like and that. there's lots of people like this, not even who aren't even elite, because the whole attitude of status and I have to be unique, I have to be something special, mm. I have to be like a psychopath, and at least in outward, you know, I have to put on that happy face and and make a lot of money and have this status and pretend everything's fine and okay. And there's a mm-hmm. tremendous amount of people like that uh, yeah. who aren't that particularly rich but would like to no. be or hold it over but other aspire people. to it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They've, been, they've been ponderized, you know, they've been infected. Mm-hmm. You've been anyway. infected, yeah. Okay. Okay, well, thanks to your, thanks to your call and your comments, Nathan. I, I'm very Good happy to, to call in. I've always wanted to. No problem. Don't be a stranger. Okay, Thanks, absolutely. Great talk to you. All right. Yes, love your show. I love it uh, a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Bye, Nathan. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay. There, there's a, a study, actually, that's recently out that corroborates a lot of what we're saying. A lot more, I think, than the author realized. Um, I'll read out the headline. Does climate change modulate human behavior? Study finds that levels of violence increase during periods of climate change. Um, I'm not going to read it all out, but they they were looking over a long time frame, 10,000 years. It's a Princeton study. <clears throat> they analyzed 60 other studies from numerous disciplines, archaeology, criminology, economics, psychology. And they were exploring the connection between weather and violence in various parts of the world from around 10,000 years ago to the present day. They found that while climate is not the sole or primary cause of violence, 
it undeniably exacerbates existing social tension in all societies, regardless of wealth or stability. Um, they go into the the specifics of climate change, i.e., like food uh, scarcity, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, they don't just say climate change. They say the reason that they would no, cause yeah. social unrest is because climate change because, causes... Because crops fail. Exactly. Supply and demand goes haywire. Prices go up and down. There's increasing tension. And no matter what country in the world they were looking at, they found the same pattern. Um, I'll, there's a quote from them. We find exactly the same pattern over and over again, regardless of whether we look at data from Brazil, Somalia, China, or the U.S., um, we often think of modern society as largely independent of the environment due to technological advances, but our findings challenge that notion. The climate appears to be a critical factor sustaining peace and well-being across human societies. And then a really interesting quote in passing. The factors that interact with climate to produce chaos and discord are varied. A popular theory is that drought and flooding cripple an, an economy, especially one based on agriculture. That points to crop failures. When people look for someone to blame, government leaders have a target on their backs. Mm-hmm. They saw that over and over again in mm-hmm. history. Who who gets who gets the blame? Well, yeah. well, they, they should get no the difference. blame when you've got exactly. centralization of production of I think crops and animals and stuff. I mean, it's if people were living agrarian lives where they were looking after themselves, they would they wouldn't blame anybody because they would realize they feed themselves. But mm-hmm. when when it's when it's society or the government that controls the sources of food and feeding or big corporations and legal government that control that, well then who, who else are they going to blame? Because they've taken control and thereby taken responsibility for mm-hmm. feeding the population and there's an unwritten contract there that, you know, okay, you're taking control of it, you're reaping massive products by our profits from, uh, from, from taking control of, of the, these food production. Uh, sources and um, therefore it's your responsibility. Yeah. If, if you if you if you break that, break that contract, I you stop feeding me. I'm going to blame you. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> I think in uh, recent history, we've never been this dependent, technology dependent, and centralization exacerbate the problem. Um, and technology is very sensitive. Centralized farming is very sensitive. In the past, you had small units of production, delocalized, autonomous, independent. So one area that was affected by cataclysm collapsed, but other areas could go on. Today, <coughs> processes, production sites, storage sites, sales, uh, selling uh, uh, sites are so interrelated, so interdependent. So if one fails, uh, most of the value chain fails and technology Electronics, bridge, nuclear plants are extremely de- uh, environment sensitive. If you get Fukushima, for example, the dike in Fukushima, it was six meters high because that studies records, historical records, and they checked the 1933 tsunami, they checked the 1896 tsunami, and from that they deduced that the height of the dike should be six meters. And uh, when uh, the tsunami occurred after this uh, 9.0 magnitude earthquake, the tsunami was 14 meters high. So yeah, sure, designing technology based on uh, past century records, or last two, past two century records makes sense in a linear environment, in Mm -hmm. 
in a stable environment. But when your two past centuries are part of a warm, stable period that is not representative at all of the Earth environment in general, your records are unreliable and your technology is not designed to face the environment that should, could be the one we experience in any future. Yeah, I mean, the, this on, on this solar storm kill shot that they've been talking about, <clears throat> whether or not there was one uh, solar, a coronal mass ejection a couple of weeks ago that could have wiped out all of your iPhones and electrical grid, um, they refer to it as a Carrington-class event, and that's from um, uh, the 1859 yeah. uh, solar solar storm that produced a coronal mass ejection that hit the Earth's magnetosphere. Um, but in 1859, that wasn't such a big problem. I mean, there were some, um, there were telegraph poles at that time, uh, but not uh, not across the world, if you know what I mean. And um, so other than that, it created, it created very little disturbance. Uh, other than that, people just saw nice auroras very, very far south. Um, but of course, today, it would have a much... Uh, a much more damaging or um, problematic uh, effect on on society because of what you've just said. Because um, technology uh, kind of controls pretty much whether or not we eat or whether a lot of people uh, eat or not today. Um, but that's kind of getting off the off the topic in a sense because we're not really concerned about solar storms or when they, or um, coronal mass ejections. We're more concerned about because you could have an EMP from a, an incoming um, <clears throat> or an overhead uh, cometary uh, explosion yes. or, an e, or an incoming uh, mm. cometary fragment or meteorite, but that would be the least of the worries it, because you would not only have uh, it's strange, isn't the it? EMP, you would have the ablation of the, of the land below. Uh, so not only would your iPhone not work, it would probably be broken into a million pieces and so would your house. <laughs> it, and there might even be a giant crater uh, downtown, you know. It's strange that they acknowledge the existence of a threat, but go out of their way to point over there, anywhere but where it actually is coming from. Yeah. So for years, we've been psychologically prepared for global catastrophe in mm -hmm. the form of man-made climate change. Mm -hmm. it's, of course, it's always projected 50 years into the future. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, is supposed to be a mitigating, a calming factor, but we're going to terrorize you about this, but take it easy, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. The same thing with the solar flare. Oh, it could be an imminent, oh, it would be big. But again, it, it's... Be afraid, but not so afraid that you lose the plot and go and, uh, you know, yeah. you know, burn Congress. Uh, be afraid just enough to make you look to us to for do protect, something about for it. protection. Yeah. yeah, in the case of solar flares... Thereby consolidating our positions as your protectors. And in this article about the... EMP, Iranian weapon, they mentioned specifically, yes, an Iranian rocket exploding high in the sky could trigger a massive EMP, destroying 90% of the population, whatever. Uh, and this high in the sky was interesting because typically an overhead cometary explosion occurs high in the sky and triggers a lot of EMP okay. uh, effects. So, to me, it sounds very probable that they're preparing the ground 
to cover up overhead chromatory explosion and disguise them as Iranian attacks, rockets, anything man-made, because mm. man-made means <coughs> we, the elites, we can control it, so we can guarantee mm. a safe world to you, the yeah, people, so we can keep on voting yeah, for us and like keep a, on trusting us. It's like a conditioning of the, of the people's mind. It's almost like a mind programming in advance. You know, so if they say it and they spread the idea out there of, you know, solar flare, EMP, or Iranian rocket, Iranian nu- EMP, if it gets into the mass psyche, you know, if and when that happens... That would be the first thing that people will be willing to accept from the media as an explanation for what it was. Now, I mean, it seems a bit far-fetched that they would be able to really pass that off if, some, if, if it was a meteorite or a cometary fragment that, that that caused that. I mean, because obviously, like we've just said, those kind of uh, incoming space rocks don't just cause EMP uh, effects. Uh, they very often ablate the landscape, as in, like for example, Tunguska, where they knock down trees over a 2,000 square kilometer radius uh, area, and um, and also the idea that you know it may not uh, may not uh, detonate in the atmosphere at all. It may just come on in for a, a more up close and personal experience. But speaking of those things. We want to go back 10, 11, 12 years, almost, to the 21st of September. Way back in the midst of time. 21st of September, 2001, another another lifetime, when there was a huge explosion at the AZF fertilizer factory in Toulouse, in France. This was a major explosion that was just 10 days after 9-11 attacks, uh, it was at a, a fertilizer factory that stored ammonium and there was 300 tons of ammonium nitrate at the facility. And it killed 29 people, uh, most of them in the factory or from the factory. And it was basically blamed on improper storage. It was a very vague uh, uh, explanation of why this facility suddenly blew up uh, just improper storage, something happened, we don't know. And the report only came out a few years ago. It took like years and years and years for them, like typical French, you know, driving nuts before. I mean, we just kind of go insane before. And by the time, by the time they release the report and the, the inquiry, you've gone insane waiting, so you can't read it anyway. Um, just to give people an idea of how big this blast was. Yeah. Okay, 29 people in the, in the immediate vicinity were, in, were killed. Up to, up to 3,000 people were injured. Yeah. in the city of Toulouse. It was three kilometers away from the city. It's a big city. And there were doors, shop windows. I think something two, like 70% of no, all yeah. the glass in the city had to be replaced. Two-thirds of the city's windows were two shattered, thirds. causing 70 so, eye wounds. That's, and, and how far is it from the actual city center? Or in three the, kilometers. So yeah, It's about three, a few kilometers um, south of the center. Most of so my friends the, were, were blasted, yeah. were... Pierre experienced to lose. windows destruction and they were blown away mm-hmm. by the shockwave and they were kilometers away. So it was a massive explosion. Massive, yeah. So the reason we that we're bringing this up is because, uh, apart from our topic, the topic that we've just been discussing, it also just suddenly occurred to us, uh, we suddenly remembered this event and that it was a fertilizer factory storing ammonium nitrate. And this obviously made us immediately think of um, the explosion 
a few months ago near Waco, Texas, at a, another fertilizer factory that was storing ammonium. I'm not sure if it was ammonium nitrate, but it was a type of ammonium fertilizer. And then also the gas plant explosion a few weeks ago in Florida. Uh, so we kind of immediately had a bit of a an aha moment where we had forgotten about this because it's 12 years ago, forgotten about this explosion in Toulouse. Because as listeners will know, we have theorized and we've looked at the video from the Waco, Texas fertilizer explosion. And it seems to us from the video that someone recorded that something was incoming. Uh, something entered that, that general area from above um Basically, it seems like it was a space rock that hit in Waco and then had, had the idea that the gas plant explosion in, uh, in Florida uh, was of a similar nature because that very night at about the very same time, right across the Gulf of Mexico, there were 10 or 12, a dozen or more reports from people from various different countries in the Caribbean and in Florida of a major uh, fireball streaking across the sky, breaking up into pieces, etc. And then you have this explosion at a gas plant in Florida. So we talked a little bit last week about the possible connection between, you know, for example, fertilizer plants or chemical plants uh, and why they would possibly be targets for meteorites or space rocks. And Pierre has a theory or an hypothesis. It's a hypothesis, sorry. It's an assumption even. No, it's a hypothesis. But just to try and um, understand why, if there is a connection between the two, why they might attract. Yeah, it got, uh, it excited my mind because last week we talked about those meteorites hitting fertilizer plants again and again. And that was quite puzzling. So at the time we had uh, some tentative explanation and uh, I did some more research. Uh, during the week, and that's during this research that I, I thought, but in Toulouse, as a death, it was a, a fertilizer plant as well. And I started to make some research about the ACDF story. So the official story is, again, like 9-11, totally unbelievable. It's a complicated chemical reaction that cannot occur. So we can uh, dismiss this uh, official explanation right now. And then there is a, a double layer, you know, there is a, a second roof lies for the conspiracy theorists and allegedly for alternative medias the real culprit was terrorism. Yeah. No wonder. Was that official report though? No, no, no. The no. official story was complicated chemical reaction yeah. and the second row for the one who dig a bit further and don't believe the, the yeah. official story was terrorism attacked. Ten days after the event, very convenient, some helicopters yeah. that were around the area and that dropped some explosive charge. But then if you dig, you realize that A, 21st of September, we, the Earth was crossing the Pisces, not the Perseids, the Pisces, a, um, a swarm, a asteroid swarm, with intense shooting star activities and incoming meteorites. B, when you read the reports, some witnesses mention a light in the sky, fireballs, more than 800 witnesses mention two explosions one that occurred eight seconds before the second one 
D, according to experts that modelized the transmission of the shock wave, the first explosion didn't occur where the plant was, but 3.5 kilometers above it. E, several witnesses, dozens actually, mentioned a lightning from the chimney, from the top of the chimney of the plant, a V-shaped lightning coming from the top of the chimney to two points in the atmosphere, high above in the sky. So all that together <coughs> suggests some uh, cometary activity, and uh, it might, and here is the, the assumption, the quote-unquote theory, now the, the speculation is that what I was exercising in my mind is why electric devices like major transformator or high-tension line, electric lines, don't attract cometary bombardments, and chemical plants do. But actually, one of the specifics of chemical plants is that they're equipped with those tall towers, those kind of chimneys, 40, 50, 100 meters tall. And in those chimneys, it's not only like a, an exhaust pipe. Within those chimneys, those towers, there are chemical reactions going on. And when you produce fertilizer, basically the reaction that goes on in these big towers is you transform ammonia, NH3, into ammonium, NH4+. And the byproduct, what you release through the fumes that go high in the sky, in the atmosphere, is NO3-. These are negative ions, negative lot. So up those towers, you have kilometers long fumes, electrically charged, negatively charged. And I realized, damn, unlike electric wires, power plants, these are like massive electrically charged antennas in the atmosphere. Mm. So it can be an attractor of incoming bodies. Not a positive charge. Exactly. And that would explain why According to the testimonies, the lightning didn't go from the top to the bottom. Lightning is an electron circulation. So it goes from the most negative to the most positive to balance charge. But according to testimonies, indeed the lightning, the V-shaped lightning, went from the bottom, from the tower, to the clouds, to the sky, which would confirm this charge, mm -hmm. electric charge difference. And uh, then you don't necessarily have to have a, a, an impact on Earth. You can have just a discharge. The first explosion, 3.5 kilometers high, eight seconds before the second explosion, can be just the overhead cometary bodies discharging in the plant, in the negatively charged plant, hence the lightning. Lightning triggering massive explosion with that within the plant and with all those volatile gas, explosive gas and mm -hmm. material, hence the crater that was uh, witnessed in the middle of, uh, of the plant, roughly. And um, yeah, that's it in a mm -hmm. nutshell. Yeah. It's a plausible explanation. That compute that fits well with uh, the lightning, the double explosion, the... it makes, it makes uh, sense. What, what the eyewitnesses saw, that they saw this electric... Yeah. charge coming up and they and two explosions they heard and some of them reported seeing a fireball yeah yeah and they reported as well a very strong statics and the breaker started breaking minutes before the impact
Mm. Um, some people got some discharges by touching uh, material mm -hmm. of the of the plant. There was a, some kind of pre-connection, mm -hmm. maybe some kind of um, mm -hmm. increase in the local charge in the plant before the, the discharge, before the connection. Well, I think it's a good theory, That's and then the, obviously the, the the conclusion, if 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 that theory is any anywhere close to being correct, it's that. Um, in this day and age, with an increasing number of fireballs and uh, in our atmosphere, uh, if you work in a fertilizer factory or live beside one, and live too close to one, you might want to consider changing your job or moving. Um, I think it's pretty interesting as well that the West Taco, West Taco, when the West near Waco explosion took place a few days after the Boston bombings. Mm. And this one took place 10 days after 9-11. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's something there with the timing. There might be. You never know. But you're getting off into uh, well, weird science there. Symbolically. Yeah. Well, uh, symbolism, of course, yeah. There's some uh, extra data about this uh, AZDEF event. Concerning the lightning, the 164 testimonies mentioning the occurrence of a lightning. There are several witnesses mentioning a fireball. And here I have the, the screenshots of the, the official uh, declaration made in front of the police. So it's uh, official documents. Uh, several people working on the site mention uh, they got electrocuted. And there you even have the electrophonics phenomenon that, is, that has been noticed during some uh, commentary events. This, uh, they describe a ultra sharp whistling like some uh, fireworks rockets like mm -hmm. and uh, the lightnings were so powerful that one of the witnesses that work near the site got his vision perturbated he could only see in black and white for several days well i think i heard something similar with people who are near the russian blast site affected their eyesight. Can't remember though for sure. <clears throat> it's, it's very interesting. Yep, it's an interesting hypothesis, and I think we will have to build on it uh, as as more uh, more data comes in in the form of. It, it, it's getting into, it's getting into specifics. You know, a specific local attractor. Mm -hmm. um, but to get back to the the overall working hypothesis. Laura summed it up very well in a comment under the article I mentioned earlier. I was reading out from this Princeton study looking at the correlation between social violence and climate change over thousands of years. And she goes for, I mean, she goes further. The, the, the question in the headline asked, does climate change modulate human behavior? Well, Laura asked, does violent human behavior attract cosmic disorder? and planetary response. Is the rise of pathology and power the key element? And then she, set, she sets out seven steps. So, number one, psychopaths rise to power and inflict misery and suffering. Stage two, the masses of humanity become unhappy and miserable, but are for, forced to su suppress this out of fear. Stage three, 
the planet expresses the unhappiness of the masses in climate disorder, which may be related to other cosmic processes. Stage four, the climate issues exacerbate the fear and unhappiness of the masses. Stage five, the psychopaths clamp down even harder. Stage six, a breaking point is reached when humanity and the planet react to pathology and death and destruction on a massive scale, leveling the playing field. Stage seven, the cycle begins anew, if you like. Human beings begin to learn to help each other to survive until psychopaths come along and subvert them again. The process begins anew. That's what I was saying last week. Yeah. I think that's pretty much the way it is. And yeah. as I was saying last week, uh, it suggests to me that the creation of utopia or peace on Earth, people need to get over that. It's not the point of life on planet Earth. It's not our job. Uh, and it's not, our, it's not only not our job, but it's not possible. It's programmed into the system that it cannot be that way. That is not the end goal or end result or something to aspire to. So look for another reason why we are here and why these cycles seem to repeat and are programmed to repeat in the same way. Um, speaking of speaking of psychopaths clamping down, I think that was stage six, right? Right before the uh, yeah stage five. It, it's, it's late on. Yeah. Well, we're obviously seeing that quite a lot yeah. uh, these days. One thing that occurred to me is that I've been noticing for the past few months, um, and longer, in fact, is the thuggish, brute nature of police, mm. particularly in the U.S. There has been a real upswing in the numbers over the past few years, probably longer, maybe five, six years, certainly since 9-11, in incidents of ordinary police officers, you know, brutalizing ordinary citizens for no good reason whatsoever. And it's interesting also, it, it does tend to happen, as far as I can tell, it seems to happen much more <clears throat> much more frequently in the US than in other, let's say, Western countries. Certainly in, in European countries, you see reports of this. I mean, I'm not aware of it happening quite so often, in, for example, the UK or in, in France or anywhere else really you know um, and I wonder is that indicative of it you know there's a I mean there's a story just recently uh, I mean this, this, I mean, we're talking here people probably know what we're talking about cops like beating children punching children tasering old men tasering old women tasering pregnant women you know just beating on people uh, taking them into police stations beating them up people actually you know dying and uh, in one case just from last week there was a a 95-year-old man, he was a World War II veteran, uh, was, well, he was killed, he's dead now, after police stormed into his retirement home with riot shields. Um, they tasered him and shot him with beanbag rounds fired from shotguns. And um, apparently it was because he refused to undergo high-risk surgery. Uh, surgery for he had something and he decided he chose not to have the surgery because the doctors gave a very bad prognosis that he would he might be on a respirator for us for the rest of his life basically after the surgery. Ninety five year old man. So for some reason they tried to force him to have the surgery. The 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 the, 
the hospital or the doctors or whatever decided to, to try and force him, and they called in the police. Uh, uh, yeah, and they arrived and they, they tasered him, and that didn't work, and they came back with uh, riot shields and beanbag guns, and he shot him with a beanbag gun, and the coroner um, said that he died from internal bleeding. Well, yeah. Because he was shot with a with a with a with a beanbag gun, and but according to the, the this is the area was in, somewhere called Park, Park Forest in the U.S. According to the Park Forest Police Department, the 95 year old man had threatened officers with a two foot long metal shoehorn and a cane, a cane that he was using to walk on, but he was sitting down at the time, um, and he had a shoehorn. I mean, the way uh, they've turned a shoehorn into a deadly weapon that mm-hmm. requires you to be tased and shot with a beanbag gun, even if you're 95 years old. So it's just, I mean, it's just horrible. And you see it, it's almost every week that you have a report or, or something. And it's not just on YouTube. It's not just, they were, it's people who, who, who witness it themselves. Uh, and it's not in the media, but it's also increasingly in, being covered by the, by the actual mainstream media because they can't avoid it. Of, of of police brutalizing ordinary people, you know. I mean, if what Laura has just said is true, then um, if that cycle is true, or those that that process is true, well, then we're pretty much at the level of, you know, that uh, precursor to to disaster where psychopaths have instituted a system where they are clamping down and tightening the screws on the population, and it's in a very blatant way. It's basically like uh, a police data. Yeah. Um, and now it just remains to be seen how much people will, will take it. But there is a limit. There's a just like the climate, there's a narrow range within of acceptability. You know. Outside of which there's a breaking point. Yeah. And I wonder if people uh you know, there's this old you hear very often from different types of people, but in the US particularly you hear them say that if you ever if you criticize this, you know or criticize the US in any way or, or highlight these stories or <clears throat> say anything bad about America, it's like, well, if you don't like it here, go somewhere else, or more often you hear, well, you know, America's still a democracy, and in fact, you're lucky, <laughs> you're lucky that you're able to actually report on these things, you're, you're lucky you're able to con- condemn the police, because um, uh, you still have freedom of expression, there's other countries where that thing might, ha- where that kind of uh, police brutality might happen, but you're not allowed even to uh, uh, speak about it, you know, but you know, there's no difference between America today and the many kind of dictatorships of old or past or present that people refer to as a comparison. Say, look, you know, you could be living in this dictatorship. You know, like in, for example, under you know Stalinist Russia or whatever. You know, or, or communist Russia. Supposedly, you couldn't speak out. Or in China today, for example, maybe you can't speak out about these things. You know, but the thing about it is, is that <clears throat> the 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 police state apparatus that is indicative, let's say, of a, a dictatorship, is in place in America. In a, in a in in a communist, for example, in a communist country or in China today or wherever you, whatever country you want to pick to hold up as this kind of you know uh, example to set against the, the the wonderfulness of America, in those countries people are aware that they have to bow their heads and keep their heads down because of the threat from the state itself. And they know that, obviously. In America, it's no different, except that what the American government 
American elite have done, that they have shifted that threat from the government itself to an external threat. And they have used that external threat to impose exactly the same uh, police state policies and infrastructure on the American people. And it's, it's, it's very, it's very, um, it, it's kind of very sneaky and very, it's very cunning in a way, you know, because it allows the people to still, it puts the people in this kind of state of, of, of they're almost like there's psychological splitting, if you know what I mean, uh, in the sense that they, they still look at their government and are able to plausibly claim or see that, um, that it isn't the government doing this. You know, the government is still on our side. But the government is simply being forced to impose these police state authoritarian dictatorial yeah. uh, infrastructures in society. The government has no Because choice. of the external threat. Yeah. But the external threat, if, if people understood the external threat, is created by the government itself. It's just a proxy created by the government to, to do exactly the same thing as they would like to do directly as all other dictatorships have done. Uh, well, what's the difference? There is no difference. It's just it's, you're being cowed by a threat. It's not from the state itself overtly. It's from an external threat. Yeah. Going back to the dynastic cycle, there's a feedback loop that didn't start yet and should start soon, I believe, that when people start to realize the cosmic mayhem that we are experiencing, when they start to see fireballs in the sky daily, major cosmic and earthly disruptions, they will start to look at the elites who are supposed to be responsible. And it will increase the social unrest. And that will increase the violent reaction of the elites and the violence, which is a modulator, we believe, of the cosmic reactions. So you're going to have even more cosmic activity, even more social unrest, even more oppression. We have not started this cycle yet. And I think it's one of the most... Uh, powerful feedback loop in this whole cycle. So when people start to get aware that no, all those phenomena are not unrelated, they are related, they start to realize those phenomena are not those phenomena, they are not man-made, they are cosmically induced. When they start to realize those phenomena are not benign, they are major and they are deadly, uh, you will have a high level of uh, stress. People will freak out and you will have this hysterization, this violence, this rebellions, and uh, very uh, severe measures taken by the elites that will worsen the old situation. I think we're already there. Yeah. Um, this attitude of, well, if you don't like it, take a hike, buddy, comes from the top down. Mm. When Obama's confronted with this current issue they have to deal with, the NSA leaks, he says... Smarmy, you know, says, I'm really glad we're able to have this discussion yeah, yeah, in America yeah. because isn't it just great? Gee, and the crowd goes, woo, 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 woo. Slap him. Isn't it great that we can discuss all the evil things that we're doing, all of the the, the brutalization of, of, of you, the people, and, you know, isn't it great that we can we can put uh, a young guy, Bradley Manning, in, in prison for probably 90 years for exposing the fact that the U.S. government, uh, that we, the U.S. government, created uh, the war on terror. Well, has been involved in war crimes, has murdered, you know, literally millions of people over the past 10 or 15 years. <clears throat> Isn't it great that <clears throat> we can do that uh, and also talk about it? 
Isn't it great? I mean, we can talk about this. I, the president, can carry out all of these draconian, dictatorial policies, how I can fleece you, the people, of your wealth, how I can you know, wage wars and murder millions of people in your name and have you accepted, and all of us just get together and talk about it. Isn't that great that we can talk about it? And Okay, well, nothing changes, but isn't it good that we can talk about it? Is that not something to take away from it? You know, I mean, when I put you all in, 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 in FEMA camps, when I put you all in prison, you know, and, and feed you gruel every day, you know, wouldn't it be good that I can come down and talk to you about the fact that we've done that? That you can express to me how you don't like it in that, in that prison camp? You know? Okay. Or how, like, when you can't feed your kid because I've robbed you, isn't it so great that you can tell me that? I mean, doesn't that make you proud to be an American? Because you can tell me and I can go, uh-huh, you're right, yeah. And keep on doing it. But, yeah, it's good. I like, I mean, freedom of speech. Freedom what? of speech to say whatever you want and have nothing done about it. Good luck with that one. Interestingly, <laughs> the number of U.S. citizens that gave up their citizenship. Increasing. Yeah, multiplied by six between 2012 and 2013. So I thought it's quite uh, symbolic and it means something. Cause it's still only a few people. Yeah, sure. Sure, but it's a strong increase. So it means at least within a minority, there's a growing number of people who obviously are getting aware that uh, the U.S. is not the great democracy as it is usually descri- described as depicted in the mainstream media. Some, a few people are opening their eyes, so that's a, a small positive note within a global, gloomy uh, uh, situation. Hmm. And Yemen? Well, you remember last week, I mean, it was unprecedented in itself. The U.S. government announced they were shut 19 embassies for one day. Hmm. Well, they ended up keeping them closed for the whole week. Mm-hmm. Again, that's even more unprecedented. And in the meantime, they've been massively bombing, stepping up drone strikes in Yemen, Pakistan, particularly in Yemen. Drone strikes, yep. Um, Why are they bombing Yemen? Does anybody know? Oh, there's some vague reference to... No, the real reason. The real reason. Why do they keep uh, attacking Yemen? It's in the news all the time. Just last week, uh, a few days ago, actually, they, um, a drone killed 30 people. And uh, it actually... They fired a missile, drone missile at school. Well, um, okay, I, I don't know. And they claim that these are, of, of course, they say uh, uh, suspected Al Qaeda terrorists yeah. were targeted, blah blah blah. But that's not actually the truth. You go and uh, read reports from people on the ground, and it's ordinary, ordinary people, yeah. women and children. Yeah, I think it's, it's to make real the threat they've just issued. Hmm. So why did they affect Yemen? Maybe the regime. Is I mean, not it's not just Yemen. It's uh, it's sort of Pakistan, Pakistan, Pakistan as well. But Yemen features. Well, they've got a massive, massive center of operations in, in Djibouti, next well, door. Well, the U.S. military has a has a, uh, a big base, a uh, military base, a naval base off the coast of Yemen in that island of uh, Socotra, which is that island with the dragons, blood trees. It's a very unique environment. And they, there's 55,000 people living there of Yemeni extraction. But the U.S. military a couple of years ago started uh, building a, a major naval base there. Mm-hmm. But... In Yemen, um impression I get is that it's obviously with the connivance of the Yemeni government, which 
who are really <coughs> just the uh, descendants of the kind of colonial uh, puppet royalty uh, that was in Yemen for uh, for a long time, up until its independence in 1950-something. Uh, the British, basically, it was a British colony. And um, the, the, there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, social problems in, in Yemen, uh, a lot of poor people. Um, and the source of this, what they claim to, uh, is, is the Al-Qaeda threat, is essentially uh, a pretty well-entrenched and long-standing kind of um, movement for essentially social justice in Yemen. And these are called uh, Al-Qaeda operatives. And I think it's with, it seems to me that it's with the connivance not only of the Yemen government but also with the Saudi government, which is right next door. Because the Saudi government has, has been uh, involved in attacking these. Uh, they're in the north of Yemen. This uh, this group, the uh, what's their name? I can't remember their name. Um, but they've basically been clamoring for a long time for against the ruling elite in Yemen, and uh, the, the Saudi government uh, supplied arms and weapons to the Yemen government to, uh, to fight against them. Has been. For, for many years um, because the Saudis were afraid that any kind of a socially progressive or socialist kind of uh, group uh, would gain traction or power in, in Yemen and stand as a, an example and would spread over the, the infection as they say it would spread over to Saudi and the Saudis are obviously uh, uh, best buddies with the, with the Americans so it seems to me that uh, a lot of these drone strikes at least one possible reason Part of the reason that Yemen is being targeted, these groups of people are being targeted, and they're only—they're just civilians. They're people who are basically social agitators. They're not—I mean, Al Qaeda is commie, right? Everything that was done in the name of fighting the commies from 1945, basically, until 1990, uh, was basically the U.S. and other countries going around the world and killing commies fighting commies, but what they were actually fighting was any kind of socially progressive movement in those countries that would have threatened U.S. and to a lesser extent British imperial and French imperial interests in those countries, i.e. the wealth of those countries. Uh, so when you went off, and like, and that was true for, for all of the overt uh, wars, Vietnam, uh, for example, but all of the covert operations that the CIA were engaged in, uh, you know, fighting commies, was basically fighting ordinary people who were clamoring yeah. for social justice and against the corruption of the ruling elite. So yeah. that has been changed now to Al-Qaeda. So anybody that is, uh, in most cases today, any Al-Qaeda operatives that are killed, uh, what behind the headlines there is uh, ordinary people who are kind of like progressive and want to... Uh, are inclined to fight for social justice in that particular country. That's who's being fought against. That's who's being killed. That's who's being bombed with, with drones. You know. Um, so I think that's what's that's part of what's going on in Yemen. Um, I mean, I think that, that 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 explanation actually explains an awful lot as to why the U.S. attacks any country. You yeah. know, that's my take on it. Uh, usually, the U.S. attack anti-American uh, groups. If the government is not pro-American or pro-Israel enough, like in Libya or Syria, they try to destitute the government by funding, uh, indirectly by funding uh, what they call rebel groups or 
directly attacking the, the government. And if the country, in the country, there are populations that are not pro-American enough, there are some rebellion movement, but they indirectly they fund the government, the pro-American government, and or directly they start destroying the rebellion movement. Mm-hmm. It's basically uh, spreading the pro-imperialist uh, paradigm in the old world. Mm-hmm. Well, Obama justified it by saying, we still have these regional organizations like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula that can pose a threat, that can potentially drive a truck bomb into an embassy wall and can kill some people. Right. So that's retrospectively justifying closing the embassy first mm. based on some nebulous threat mm-hmm. and then bombing the shit out of people and saying, well, we did that because they might have done this. Yeah. It's all from this minority report. paranoid mindset that that running the country. I don't even uh, know if paranoia. It's just pure bullshit it's pure that they make up. Um, I think it ties into the NSA leaks as well. That the purpose of this terror scare was to to silence criticism mm-hmm. of yeah. what the NSA is doing. Yeah, they're so transparent; it's ridiculous. Oh, you know, it's just it just makes you want to. You've got Republican Democrat senators. <clears throat> and, you know, they're they're like the the Greek chorus for Obama here. Senator Saxby Chambliss from Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a quote: "There's an awful lot of chatter out there." If we didn't have these programs, NSA spying on everyone, then we simply wouldn't be able to listen in on the bad guys. Bad guys. It's the goodies and the baddies. Are people that simple-minded that they believe that? That infantile explanation? The baddies are going to get you? Maybe they'll start firing drones into people's houses, you know, through their bedroom windows and blowing up their closets because the boogeyman was there. Developing EMP weapons. They'll have police raiding their yeah. Have police raiding people's houses and overturning their beds and in the hunt for the boogeyman living under your bed. And people will go, okay. I think they they raided someone's house last week. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they, they raided someone's house because the and the the wife was I think the guy's wife was home. He was out. They were looking for the husband because he'd done a Google search for pressure cookers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> On the strength of that, stop, the bro- stop making broth. Yeah, they're trying to stop people uh, making bone broth. Yeah, not too far. It's it's gone. Major threat. Anyway, I think we're going to leave it there this week because we have uh, over on our time. We hoped you all enjoyed the show. Thank you to our callers and thank you to our chatters. Uh, don't be uh, don't be chatting too much because you know that kind of chatter can get you in trouble, as you've seen. The NSA is listening to your chatter. Well, I think you're... I think you should do the opposite. You should chatter everything. And every opportunity yeah. you get, get chatter in more. Terrorist, Al-Qaeda, bomb, Pakistan, yeah. Brooklyn Pr- Bridge. Pressure cooker. <laughs> Pressure cooker. Bone broth. Overload them with data. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. So thanks for listening, guys. And thanks for our callers. And thanks for our chat room people who are always very active and very informative. And very... Uh, very interested. So next week, tentatively, uh, we are going to have um, an interview with Francesco Carrotta, who is the author of a book on a topic we've discussed before, Caesar, 
Jesus was Caesar. There's a title, the title of the book. book. It's called Jesus was Caesar, and it's obviously about, uh, well, it's kind of self-explanatory. What it was yeah. about. So we'll be re- revisiting that topic next week with the author of one of the, probably one of the best books on the topic. So we hope you can join us. We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance. Sorry about that, folks. Something just went wrong. Anyway. It's not 100% sure, but it's, it's yeah. very likely that Francisco Carota will be with us next Sunday, but he's sick and he's very busy, so Hopefully. I hope he recovers and uh, I hope he will be with us next Sunday. Until then, thanks for listening and keep the faith. See you next week. Have a nice week. Bye.